This is Contact Mike. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you, Doe. It's March. It's March. It's a podcast about the things that make us human. Moments of change, indecision and, well, well, contact. Contact. Contact Mike is a monthly podcast by Sarah Walker. Like 90s rolled up work pants and sparkles. And Fleur Kilpatrick. I was the one that had all of the speaking. It's produced by Kieran Ruffles. It is literally indistinguishable but for context. And it's going to start. It's going to start. Now. Chapter 1. This month in your world, a woman stretched up her arms to the sky and cried out, I did it, I won, Palestine won. Her name was Hanan al-Harub. She had won the title of best teacher in the world, a phrase that is perhaps meaningless, although her work is not. This woman helps Palestinian children recover from the trauma of violence through play and storytelling, techniques she developed when her own children were shot at and their father hit. She said their whole personalities changed after that, and so she began her games on their rooftop and in their house. She invited neighbourhood children, and together they played their way back to feelings of safety, of joy of childhood. This month in your world, a woman asked her father to walk her down the aisle. She said she knew the patriarchy was bullshit and that it was a patriarchal tradition, but still she wanted to be on his arm for those 30 steps. Still wanted to feel him beside her as she walked towards their future. Her dad was fine with that. This month in your world, a young man put a USB into an old computer and, for the first time in his life, he saw a soap opera. The USB had been smuggled to him, carried inside the lining of a jacket, across the border, into North Korea and all the way to him. It didn't contain secrets or big news, just some stuff, some stories, some soaps and a South Korean movie about a beautiful woman falling in love with a beautiful man. Just tiny window into the outside world, you know. The young man listened with headphones, one earbud hanging out so that he could hear if anyone was approaching. He listened with his mouth open just a little. And when he'd finished and put away that USB and those headphones, that outside world seemed just a step closer. This month in your world, a child saw the ocean for the first time. And they cried, because they'd never known anything so big. Chapter 2 Morgan says that living in New Orleans was like being part of a secret. The city is full of tiny details you wouldn't notice unless you lived there. She says it smells like beer and pee and vom and jasmine. And that it sounds like a parade. Morgan was born in New Orleans and lived there until she was 13. She moved away as a teenager and moved back as an adult and discovered New Orleans, the adult city. It always felt like home. And it always felt like it was on the brink of something. It feels like it's dying all the time, but it won't die. Hurricane season, 2005. 
there was things on the news, but there's always things on the news. So they're always like, there's a storm coming. Um, everyone should probably leave town. And so they were saying that. And everyone ignores it for a while because it's very expensive to leave town. Lots of times people don't. And then it was getting bigger and bigger and getting worse and worse. And it felt different. And there were times, there were times that I had gone and there were times that I had stayed. But this time I was like, I feel like it's, I don't know, they sounded different. It was big. It was bigger than before. Morgan, her boyfriend and a friend, packed into a car and left the city two days before Hurricane Katrina hit. And then it took us 10 hours because everybody's getting out. So that's one of the reasons people don't leave because they're like, I'm going to be sitting in traffic just to get out of the city for five hours, you know? And we left thinking, oh, it's going to be fine. You know, like, I know that like we should leave, but we'll be back. It's not going to happen. And so just like packed an overnight bag. I had like you know, one change of clothes and my toothbrush. And it felt like a fun vacation. The town they were staying in was sunny and quiet. They settled in to watch the news. And it was fine. Like, it blew over. Everyone stayed up drinking. Like, you you saw on the news, like, people were like, the bars aren't closing, hurricane party! You know, and there's, like, wind blowing, and the reporter's, like, in their, like, little raincoat, and people are like, yeah, partying behind them. The hurricane passed. The town got wet and windy and some windows broke. It wasn't perfect, but it was okay. The city was okay. And so we went to bed and thought, oh, we'll go back tomorrow. Woke up and the levees had broken and the city was filling with water. And we just watched the news all day in horror and saw just like rising, rising, rising and saw people climbing to their roofs. We just saw it like drowning and nothing happening. And help didn't come. Help didn't come, it was really weird. It took days. Did you know anyone who was there who didn't evacuate? There was this girl that I had had this weird experience with. She lived in the apartment above me and I would hear her arguing with her boyfriend all the time. One day Morgan heard the girl crying and crying. Morgan, like the passionate, poetic 21-year-old she was, left the girl a flower in her mailbox. With a note, like this like really sappy note that was like, things will get better, and like put it in her mailbox, rang the doorbell, and ran back to my apartment. They went out for coffee once. They bitched about their boyfriends. She was like, yeah, my boyfriend's fucked. And I was like, yeah, my boyfriend's fucked too. They predicted they would be great friends. They exchanged phone numbers, but didn't see each other again. Except then I got a call from her when I was evacuated, and she was there, and she was like, I don't know what to do, I need help. There's people here, the government's here, and they're trying to make me leave, but they won't let me take my cats. And I don't want to leave my cats here. She wanted to get out with Morgan, but Morgan was already in sunny northern Louisiana. Morgan told her to leave the cats, that they would find rats to eat and be fine. You have to get out. And she was like, yeah, okay, but I could tell she wasn't, she wasn't going to leave her cats. I knew she wasn't, so. Do you know what happened? I have no idea. After a month, they heard the government was letting business owners back into the city. So we had a friend make up pretend business cards for us. I think we owned a screen printing business. We were like ready. We were like had our fake stories and then we just drove in. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was this completely empty city. It was beautiful, but really creepy. And you'd see army people everywhere. And I went to my apartment and it was normal except for the window had been blown in and rain had gotten on my bed and so there was some mold on my bed and then I didn't even open my fridge because there were maggots I could see them crawling out of it and 
already, if you drove along the streets, there were refrigerators in front of every house because people were getting rid of their maggoty refrigerators. We were there just for a day, I think. Went to a bar, like kind of had an angry, boozy night. We were all just in a weird mood. And then packed up whatever we could fit in our cars. For some reason, I took all my books. I don't even know. I didn't even read that much, but I took all my books. Um, and I took this sculpture that my grandmother made. They moved to Austin temporarily. It was the closest not-crap city. <laughs> We'd gotten this really cheap apartment because everyone was amazing. If you said you were from New Orleans, they were like, here, take this. They would just give you things for cheap or free. And so we got this really good deal in an apartment. And like we moved in and we had my books and a sculpture. <laughs> that was really it. And it was this giant apartment. It was like a two-bedroom, two-bathroom apartment. <laughs> and we had nothing in and um, I really thought we were going back. I was like, we'll go there, we'll stay there for a few months, and then the city will get back to normal, and then we'll move back. But things didn't go back to normal, and after a few months, they returned to New Orleans with a moving van. And I remember the landlord was like, oh, you're leaving? And I was like, yeah, because I'd lost my job. My apartment was okay, but I'd lost my job. And I was like, I work in theater. The city doesn't need theater. It needs like electricians and builders, you know? And he was like, oh, that's too bad because the city needs people right now. And I just left anyway. I feel a lot of regret for not going back after the storm. Like, it feels like a person. And I feel like I abandoned it in its time of need. And that wasn't nice of me. I still feel like I fucked over New Orleans. Morgan moved from Austin to Seattle, but no city felt like home. Not after New Orleans. She made theatre, she trained with the city company, and then, on a whim, applied for an internship with physical theatre company Zen Zen Zoe in Brisbane and got in. I just said yes and then came to Australia having done no research. I was like, thought it was going to be this giant desert. <laughs> <laughs> I like had these fantasies. I was like, when I get there, I'm going to buy like a motorcycle. I'm going to ride like a motorcycle around these dirt roads. So you were essentially just expecting it to be Mad Max. Yeah, I, I yeah. really did. And I never even seen Mad Max. But, <laughs> but I just knew that, I guess, intuitively. Yeah, that movie. Is it time to introduce the second Katrina? Is that what we're ready for? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm Katrina. This is Katrina Cornwall. Not the hurricane. We met coming up to six years ago. Kat had been working for Zenzenzo and was ready to leave. So I was like, okay, I've been here for a while, but I will finish this last teaching gig that I said I would do six months ago. I will honour my commitment. And so I was teaching a directing intensive where we go to the woods in this cabin for a week and it's very <laughs> immersive. And um, Morgan was one of the participants of that workshop. But I have to say that we actually met before that workshop at some point in Brisbane at a bar through this theatre company. And I do not remember the first remember time we it, met. The fir our first interaction, I have no recollection I remember of. it because you were really mean. <laughs> <laughs> because she, she um, you weren't mean, but you were just dismissive. I was just yeah, so um, the, the artistic director of the theatre company was like, oh, Morgan, this is Katrina. She'll be running the session at Montville. So um, I'm just going to introduce you. Morgan's an intern, blah, blah, blah. And so we, like, shook hands or whatever, and then, like, Kat didn't even say a sentence. She was just like, okay, I'm going to go, and just left, like, right away. <laughs> 
And I was, it was right at the point that I had just moved to Australia. I was probably like one or two weeks in and feeling really like lonely and like, why am I here? Like, I don't have anyone to talk to. And I just felt like everyone was doing that. So I really remembered it. You were like, you were like the straw. So when you guys were doing the workshop together, I want to know, did you immediately look at each other and be like, oh, that girl who is so mean to me. I want to kiss her on the face. Mm -mm. Yes. (laughs) Morgan started speaking and I had an aha moment. I was like, oh my God, she's so cool. And she's the only one here that's not crazy. But then for the rest of the week, I was like, don't spend too much time working with Morgan on her piece because she'll know. But I so th- just ignore her. Because I thought she was spending way too much time with me on my piece. And I was like, does she think I'm incompetent? <laughs> like, I know how to do this. I don't need you, like, watching over my shoulder the entire time. And so I thought that she just hated me. At the end of the camp, in an attempt to get the participants to leave, management turned out the power. And then do you remember when the lights went out at the end? You hugged me for a really long time. And like I was an like, awkward amount of that's time. really weird because she hated me. Next came the awkward Facebook messages. It was weird. Yeah, I'm yeah really bad at flirting. The penny didn't drop until Morgan scoured through Kat's Facebook. And then there were pictures of you with your ex-girlfriend. And I was like, oh, she's a lesbian. Oh, she likes me. <laughs> and I put it together. And then the next time I saw you was in Adelaide. She was doing a show. And I was in the audience and I was like, oh, she's really good. Oh, no, I think I like her, too. Then we got drunk and made out near the toilets. Yeah, (laughs) not even toilets, the (laughs) porta-potties. So romantic. (laughs) Morgan had a nine-month visa and it took almost all of those months for the two of them to make it work. Well, the beginning of the relationship was very rocky because Kat kept refusing to be in a relationship. She kept being like, I like you, I like you. And I was like, great, let's do this. And she was like, no, I don't think so. I'm a real pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Then finally, after months and months of that, like right when the internship was over, so I was like, I'm about to leave. She was like, okay, I'm ready. (laughs) Morgan left for a few weeks in Japan. While she was there, she had two realizations. Realization one. And I missed you so much. Realization two. I have to stay in Australia longer. I just have to stay. So she applied for a working holiday visa and came back to Brisbane. Okay, I can be here for a year now, but I don't know what I'm doing with my life and you're the only reason I'm here. (laughs) What does that do to a relationship that someone's in the country just to be with you? It just puts a lot of pressure on everything. Immediately we knew that it was like a thing. And so we had to have these really serious conversations really early on. I didn't really know that many people. I didn't have a job. Like, it puts a lot of strain. Because actually, you were the only reason I was here. Mm. And I was miserable in every other part of my life. So it's like, this relationship better work. And there was the whole different country thing. It's very subtly different. Morgan says everything in Australia is just an inch off, creating not so much culture shock as culture discomfort. The big one is small talk. Small talk's very different. It doesn't match and it is disastrous. So Americans were all about how exciting everything is. We like everything. We compliment everything. Yeah, the way that you, you go into a conversation with someone that you like don't really know how to relate to is like, where did you get that? I love that. And then they're like, oh, well, let me tell you, I got it. And you just launch into this whole excited conversation about where they got their shirt, you know? And Australians aren't that excited about their shirts or where they got them. (laughs) They're like, oh, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. They don't believe you when you say that you like it. They're like, why are you saying, why are you saying you you don't like my shirt? You're just lying. (laughs) When Morgan's visa ran out, the two of them moved back to the US and then it was Kat's turn to be the one out of place. 
the one without friends or a job. When you're the one in the foreign country, you also feel really pathetic and you don't want to feel pathetic. You're like, I'm not this person. I'm not this person that sits around moping, not doing anything. I'm like this productive, vibrant human being and you just oh, you just lose yourself and you like try everything that you can possibly think of to like enact, to like awaken your life in this new country, but it's really hard. It's really hard to do quickly. There were years of this, years of applying for courses or visas or jobs that would buy them a few more months, a few more months. And sometimes the applications were successful and sometimes they were not. And one of them would have to pack bags and go to an airport and go up in the air and go away. And that was hard. I was like, this isn't working. Like, we're not finding a way. We're not finding a way. Were there times when you didn't think it was worth it? No. Really? No, I don't yeah, think so. Yeah, I was always in it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Eventually, Morgan came back to Australia on a tourist visa and got into the Victorian College of the Arts. And they were safe for a year, and by the end of that year, they'd lived together long enough for their relationship to be considered de facto, and Morgan could stay. How has your sense of home changed over the last 10 years? Since the hurricane, I just felt so confused about home. Because New Orleans was always my home, because it's where I was born, and I just feel a weird tie to it. Even though when I was moved back and was living there it was hard but I just feel connected to it and having it taken away it sent me into this place where I was just moving all the time I was searching and searching and searching I was trying to find home I didn't feel home anywhere my friend Diane told me that her dad always used to write a wish in a marker on his tube of toothpaste and then when the toothpaste is up you'll have gotten what you want So I have a picture of it. I wrote home on my toothpaste. And then the toothpaste ended and I was still in Australia. Hmm. Morgan's always had like a weird obsession with place, like what a city is, like what its um, soul is. And I never understood it until I visited New Orleans. And it's just like such a cool city with this like really rich history and the people there like love the shit out of it. And I grew up in Mackay, which no one would ever love the shit out of. <laughs> but I feel like Melbourne is like the closest that we're going to get to New Orleans in Australia. So I feel like moving here has been a really good move for both of us. It feels good here. Yeah. Yeah. I feel less like I need a place as home. Like I feel like I've accepted that like home can be anywhere. And I feel like, like having cat, like, yeah, like if you're with me, then... It's home enough. (laughs) Chapter three. What does home mean to you? I've moved house every year for the last six years. And I'm always kind of uh, interested by how quickly a place becomes home and how quickly an old place stops being home. When you're traveling, you stay somewhere for four days, and by the fourth day, you're like, that's my cafe. That's the the street that I walk down to get to the supermarket. Yeah, that one's my bus. That's my yeah. tram. And it's funny that we do that as humans, that kind of need to put roots down and to, to feel familiar. So I suppose home is, is really familiarity for me. What is it for you? I don't know. Home is two different cities for me, and whenever I'm flying into either one of them, I feel this massive rush of coming home 
chemicals <laughs> running through my body. I don't know what that chemical would be, but this looking down on both those skylines creates the same buzzing in my lungs. But I was thinking about it. What I often miss when I'm not at a home is contact, is, is human contact. Mm. I really notice it when I'm away from home, like off working on a project for a few weeks and go and you have these moments where you're like, no one's hugged me in three weeks. Mm. No one's no one's like touched my hand or kissed me hello or something. Mm. I think home for me is is that physical familiarity with both people and place. Yeah, you do become so aware of people kind of bumping into you on public transport and kind of being like, ah, human contact's really important. It's really important. Um, And I'm very tactile. I'm a very tactile person. I'm kind of like, we've met three times. Now I will sit on you. (laughs) So, yeah. I was listening to this podcast yesterday called The Lonely Hour. And they were talking about solo travel and they interviewed this guy who drove the loneliest road in America up in Alaska and uh, he was talking about the difference between loneliness and solitude where he said loneliness you can't be lonely without being aware that you're by yourself but solitude is a kind of innocence of the fact that you're alone and you're so filled up with your own being that you don't need anyone else and he was talking about being young and being so full of himself both full of himself in terms of arrogance but also just full of self that he kind of craved big open spaces to kind of spread out into, which I thought was wonderful. When I was in high school, we had an Italian exchange student come and stay with us for a little while, and my mother decided that to really let him understand Australia, we needed to go up into Central Australia and um, and go and stay in the mountains, in the bush. So we did that, and he was horrified. Because for him, holidays were you go to a beach with another 10,000 people and you get your tiny little square big enough to put out your towel Mm. and you lie on that towel and that is your towel. Mm. And he just could not cope with the emptiness of where we were. And my mother like sat down, had a conversation with him trying to explain it. And she said, in Australia, we call it getting away from it all. And he ran and he got his little notebook and he wrote down getting away from it all so carefully. But I don't know how much it really sunk in beyond those words, because on the way back, the first time we passed a car, he got so excited. What does home mean to you, Kieran? It's like exactly eight years ago. Um, This time, exactly eight years ago, I was in a white 92 Mitsubishi Lancer with all of my possessions in the world crammed into it, plus, for some reason, about 150 vinyl records that belonged to a DJ friend of mine who'd moved to Melbourne several years earlier and I agreed to bring them to Melbourne with me. And I drove solo from Brisbane to Melbourne and it felt kind of weird because it was, like now, it was Easter. And so my car could only get AM radio and so I was listening to Radio National and there was these people talking about the symbolism of Easter, about death and rebirth about endings and beginnings and it just felt so like exactly what was happening to me at that moment and um yeah it kind of it made me feel like I was doing the right thing or uh, the thing that I was doing I was doing it at the right time 
Like if I ever leave Melbourne for a week and I'm not annoyed at missing something, then maybe Melbourne's not home anymore. But that hasn't happened. Yeah, I guess home to me means missing it when you're not there. When we were recording that conversation with Katrina and Morgan, we were in uh, Kieran's studio and we didn't have enough microphones and everyone was kind of crammed together in this tiny space full of mixing desks and sofas. And um, they were sitting with their knees almost touching, just staring into each other's eyes with such love and respect and care for each other. And it felt kind of intrusive almost to be in the same space as them to kind of see this incredible connection. It made me so happy. Do you remember the first time a a lover told you they loved you? Yes. The The first time a boy told me he loved me, he told me in French, and I don't speak French. So he, he turned to me and he says, Je t'aime. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, Google it. But I couldn't spell it because it was in French, so he had to spell it out for me. And then I'd hit enter and was, and then it came up and said, I love you. And I was like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Wow. Great, thanks. It was, so, it was so awkward. What a moment. I know, I know. I, mean, I don't think I even said it back to him at the time. And then he was also Czech, so then subsequently there was a lot of Yatya Milu, which is in Czech. Like, really, yeah, it took a long time before anyone just told me in words I understood that they loved me. (laughs) When was the first time someone told you they loved you, Fly? I actually don't remember. I remember one particular incident, though, of my boyfriend saying that he loved me, but I don't think it was the first, because we'd been together quite a long time by this point, and he'd he'd moved to Melbourne for me, so he'd probably at some point expressed some some degree of emotions at this point. But um, my best friend was over visiting us, and we were very drunk in a park. We were drinking, like, the cheapest stuff we could find, which turned out to be this, like strawberry milk flavored stuff and afterwards my friend threw up pink and it was the worst um so we were drunk and feeling disgusting but it was just raining like just a little bit in this park and it was just yeah it was one of those nights where we fell in love again I think and just and we're just like so happy to be there together and just so truthfully told each other we loved each other in that moment off our face on pink goo in the rain yeah that was that was pretty special Contact Mike is a monthly podcast about people by Flo Kilpatrick and Sarah Walker produced by Kieran Ruffles you can find us at contactmikepodcast.com we would love it if you followed us on social media and reviewed us on iTunes this has been Contact Mike this episode episode ends ends now. now Stopping the thing now. He's stopping the thing. The thing is stopping.